Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, media trainer and editor of veganbusinessmedia.com, the multimedia blog providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interviewed Joshua Catcher from Brave Gentleman, a disruptive vegan menswear label in New York. Joshua previously worked in creative media, including roles as director, editor, producer and director of photography for PBS and MTV. In 2008, he discovered an appreciation for fashion and launched men's lifestyle website The Discerning Brute, which focused on fashion, food and etiquette for the ethically handsome man. The blog quickly established Joshua as a pioneer in the field of ethical, sustainable fashion. And two years later, in 2010, he launched the Brave Gentleman label and online store. Brave Gentleman fuses future textiles with centuries-old production methodology. Utilising what he calls future suede, future leather and future wool, which are superior to animal fibres, Joshua has created a high-end, sustainable and ethically made men's collection. The company offers luxury New York-made suiting, premium footwear produced in Portugal and hats made in Los Angeles, along with accessories made in New York's historic garment centre and Gloversville. Joshua's groundbreaking work has been featured in several high-profile media outlets, including Oprah.com and most recently Paper Magazine, which referred to Brave Gentleman as having just about everything a mindful fashionisto could want. As well as running his business, Joshua is also an adjunct professor of fashion at Parsons the New School. His research focuses on sustainability and ethics in fashion, and he'll soon be releasing a book on the topic. In this interview, Joshua discusses the key things you must have and do to create a successful business, despite having no previous experience in a particular industry. The challenges involved in opening a physical store. The one thing that will set you apart from other brands why crowdfunding is not necessarily a good strategy for fashion brands, a relatively unknown yet surprisingly beneficial source of loans, the importance of pre-orders to grow your business, and much more. Here's the interview with Joshua Catcher from Brave Gentleman. Hello, Joshua. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Well, so you've been a real pioneer in the men's lifestyle and ethical fashion space. So I'm very excited to to speak with you. And I know that our listeners who are fellow vegan business owners and entrepreneurs will will gain a lot from from our chat. So first of all, tell us about the why. Uh, What's the reasons for running your business? Why do you do it? There's a there's a lot of reasons that I started my business. And it's funny because I never really imagined myself being a business owner or being in fashion. And I somehow fell into it. Um, When I started my blog in 2008, I started writing about men's fashion and men's lifestyle from an ethical and vegan perspective. And at the time, most of the content that was about fashion and lifestyle that was ethical and vegan was geared towards women. So there was a real void in the market both in a a way to have a dialect around this and also products. There weren't very many products that were high quality and aspirational and geared towards men. So after several years of writing the blog, there just weren't the things that I wanted to have for myself out there. So I thought, why don't I try to make something? And my first my first attempt was a collaboration with the brand Novaka, where we we collaborated on on shoes together, and to this day that that collaboration on the footwear is is still going on, and um, and one thing led to another, and now I have this uh, this wonderful 
lifestyle line, Brave Gentleman, that is now, it's menswear, but it's unisex. And, um, and it's also, for me, really important to show that animals don't need to be used to make high quality and sought after and desirable fashion or especially in the menswear world, it's so much about wool and leather. And those are the two materials that I've really tried to show are obsolete. There are superior materials out there and we really hope to, um, to prove to both vegans and non-vegans that it's something that, um, that just isn't necessary anymore. Fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you answered that because my second question, I was curious about whether, I know when you launched the Discerning Brute um, at the blog, the magazine, the lifestyle um, media outlet, and then you launched the, the label, I was curious about whether Brave Gentleman evolved organically, like I think you said it did, or whether that was your plan yeah. all along. So I'm glad you, you answered that because I think that's that's kind of, that's a really great example of someone starting up a blog, you know, starting up some kind of content media outlet, and then actually finding a business opportunity down the line like you don't necessarily have to have it all planned out so I think that, that's a, a really great example and um, you write some some wonderful blogs I've read some of your your articles all about these amazing materials that are coming up which is, is very exciting and as you say getting it Thank out there you. particularly in the men's space is is fantastic so now a lot of the time and, and you've touched on this I think a little bit a lot of the time vegan and otherwise ethical or sustainable products they're they're pricier because business owners aren't able to get the discounts available in bulk purchases for example of the raw materials now you've placed brave gentlemen at the luxury end of the market why did you choose that direction well part of it was just necessary um there's there's two reasons and you know that's a complicated question because yes there's the benefit of having a very large company and being able to buy big volumes of materials and then you get a discount but even with that as an ethical company, everything in my value chain is going to be a little bit more expensive because I'm making sure that workers are paid fairly, that um, these these materials are inherently more expensive because they're new technologies and they're superior long-lasting materials, so you, you pay a little bit more. So even if I were buying large quantities, it would still be a more expensive line. And in fashion, we've we've really been trained to expect clothing to be cheap and Mm. instead of asking why is this line expensive a more important question is to ask why are these other companies able to sell clothing for so cheap what does that mean and what does that reveal and that's a very troubling uh curtain to look behind um especially when it comes to fast fashion brands like i don't want to name any but um you you can all think of the the fast fashion brands i'm thinking of um it's a very troubling thing. So uh, there was a time where people owned only a few, only a few outfits each. And that wasn't that long ago. And I think that it's really important to invest, to see fashion as not something that's frivolous and not something that's silly or trivial. It's a very impactful, globally impactful industry. It's the second leading polluter in the world. It affects um, millions of workers, billions of animals. Um, it has a history of driving animal species to extinction based on something uh, like a trend. Um, and to, to look at it as something that's only about fun or, or style is a, a very big underestimation. Um, so so there's the, the, the answer of why is it expensive because uh, ethical fashion inherently costs more to make. And on top of that, luxury market, um, I'm, I don't think Brave Gentleman is at the top of that, at that tier, you know. We have stuff that's, uh, our shoes are, are more affordable than um, most luxury brand shoes. But um, there's something to be said for creating aspiration and desire within the context of our current culture. That if, if I'm selling something for very cheap, a, I don't think I'd really be able to make any money on that. I'd probably be losing money. It usually costs me more to make a pair of shoes at cost than what a lot of these discount places sell their shoes for at retail, which is shocking. Wow. Um, so it's, 
it's there's something to be said for the the aspiration and the desire that exists around the idea of what luxury is and i'm not claiming that that is something that is um inherently valid or worth pursuing in the long run but for now to make change in the mainstream we have to play the game a little bit when it comes to um the the fashion industry and what what excites people and what gets people to pay attention to something and i've always thought that if i can access a more mainstream and aspirational fashion consumer maybe somebody who's not vegan um i can expose them to ideas and values that they might not have thought out otherwise Absolutely, and I think you're you're certainly doing that. I I would think because you know you're the, like you say that that what you make is very stylish and it's breaking down those stereotypes that ethical is boring and and that kind of thing. So thank you for explaining that. And I think that's a really good question that you posed is not necessarily to ask well why are these ethical brands more expensive, but like you say why are these fast fashion brands um so cheap? I think that was a really yeah. nice distinction. Um, so like you said, you kind of almost fell into like uh you know starting up this new business and and in a complete different industry and um, we touched on earlier you worked in the media um mtv and video producing and then suddenly you're you're creating a, a fashion brand so can you tell us about what were some of your key challenges when you were first starting up brave gentlemen <laughs> everything i knew i knew nothing <laughs> about fashion it's so funny i knew nothing about fashion i didn't go to school for fashion in fact i was somebody who considered myself anti-fashion i always saw i was i was guilty of the very thing that i now fight against where i thought fashion was <laughs> something that was uh, inherently indicative of something that was materialistic and um and vain and uh and and just kind of silly and stupid i saw it, I, all these people that would gather around fashion week and the fashion magazines and all the all of the excitement around it i just saw as completely unnecessary. And it wasn't until I really started looking at it seriously and doing research that I realized, wait a minute, this is not exactly what it seems. And it's kind of dangerous how easily fashion is passed off as insignificant because that's the number one way in which it has such huge impacts is it flies in under the radar. It's very, <laughs> it's very stealth. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, what, what was the question again? Oh, what oh, were some of your so, key challenges? So I'm loving this. this is so cool because I, it's really inspiring. I thought you must have had like a massive history, you know, like even though you were working in media, that you must have had some passion or interest in fashion. So I love that you've come at this so new because that's really inspiring for people to know that they can start a business in an area even if they don't have a lot of experience. Yeah. So I yeah. really, so, <laughs> yeah, I really believe that if you are passionate about something and you want to pursue something you don't have to have a degree in it you don't have to have extensive experience but you do have to do the work to get there because my lack of knowledge about fashion at the very beginning it was i made a lot of costly mistakes and i made i had to learn through trial and error and i know i, I had a i went to art school so i had a, i had a general idea of how to make things and how to be creative and uh, I had a good sense of aesthetics, but um, the way that the fashion industry worked, I had no idea how to wrap my head around this idea of seasons and trade shows and when things happened and how to, how to find a buyer and how to even go through the production process of making a garment where it's so many steps there's sourcing where you find your materials and then there's the the design phase where you you sketch out or do technical illustrations, and then you have to have uh, a sample made, and then you have to have a pattern cutter uh, cut the patterns, then you have to have a grader make all the different sizes, and then you have to find a factory to to do the cutting, and then another factory to do the sewing, and it's it's incredible how complicated it is to make fashion, and understanding how it's made makes complete sense of how it's so impactful because of how many hands something as simple as a shirt goes through before it ends up on the rack. 
Got it, got it. So as you went on, um, so, you know, you started out, You, as you said, you put in the work, you did your research, you learned, as you say, by making costly mistakes. So, but then, you know, you started to, like your brand has really kind of taken off and, you know, you're kind of, like you say, you know, really been recognized and, and as a pioneer in this in this space for ethical men's fashion. So as you've grown and you've become more known, how have the challenges changed as you've grown as a business? The challenges really do shift, and uh, once once I got the identity of my business together, once I kind of found out who, what Brave Gentleman is, who I am as a designer, and settled on a general collection and aesthetic that we're probably going to stick with, um, then the challenges shift to growth and sales and finding the right team and finding investment and figuring out, do I want to have a small little boutique company or do I want to be a big company that has large scale impact? And I really want to have large scale impact. The whole reason I went into fashion was as an activist. I wanted to change the industry and I wanted to use the influence that fashion has and the, um, and the spell it casts on people to, to carry a message. And as, a, as an activist prior to being a fashion business owner, I, I pursued very traditional forms of activism where I, you know, I, I picketed and I went to protests and I would hand out pamphlets and I would go and talk to people and I have found that through fashion, using fashion as a medium for this message, it is so much more well-received by people who aren't already on board. Um, it, and and that, that's that been um, a really interesting um, bit of information that I've learned. Um, but the challenges now for me at this stage of my business are really figuring out how how to make it in the long run, how to, how to last and how to have long-term growth. And I didn't go to business school. I don't have a, I don't have a, you know, a master's in business or anything. So again, I'm sort of learning as I do it and being, having to be very careful and also having to have people around me who are very knowledgeable and who are experts in that field. And, um, things have been going, going really well. So, um, I'm, I'm either very lucky or I'm doing the right thing. Uh, I think you're probably doing the right thing by the sounds of it. Now, I believe you um, you opened a, a physical store in Brooklyn, and now you're you're moving. What were some of the challenges involved in going from an e store to a physical one? <laughs> I remember the first the first day I started building the store, I suddenly realized, oh wait, we need a cash register. <laughs> the idea of actually having to exchange physical money was so weird because I'd had an online business for so long and I never had to deal with cash. I mean, occasionally I would have someone come by who bought something in person or we'd do an event, but the idea that I had to consistently have cash on hand at a, at a register, that's, so that's a little funny bit of info. Um, but the the unexpected things were just, store upkeep, overhead, um, having a, uh, having somebody working retail, uh, five days, you know, five days a week, um, figuring out how to make a very small space look exciting and desirable. Um, with the internet, you can curate a space uh, with a little bit more control than you can in, in, in physically. It costs a lot of money to to build out a space. And I found myself really going back to my art, my art roots of, I, I used to be a sculptor and I, I have painting background and I put the I put the store together myself and uh, I was able to do it relatively affordably. And um, short of having to have a carpenter come in and do the actual shelving and make sure it was correct and stable. Um, I did everything myself. And it, I was really proud of it, and I'm sad that it's no longer there. And now we're looking for a new storefront or a new opportunity to collaborate with an existing space. 
Cool. Great. Great. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's great. Now, in terms of um, competition, so there's now a more diverse range of vegan and ethical fashion brands, including some that target men. How do you go about standing out both within and outside of the vegan business arena, as well as the, the fashion industry and maintaining customers? I find that people, customers really, they want to have a relationship with the brand that they invest in. And I feel that I've been around long enough and people know the brand and they know the quality of the products that we make that I have a lot of people who stand behind Brave Gentleman as having the best shoes they've ever worn, the longest lasting footwear they have, the best bag they ever bought, the best belt, the longest lasting belt, Um, things like that where it really, you can't, those are, those are things you can't necessarily compete with. There are other brands that pop up that are attempting to directly compete with Brave Gentleman, especially taking some of our aesthetics and some of uh, our materials that we use. And, um, and it's, it's flattering that people think we're worthy of copying, but um, I've also, uh, I also know that they don't come with the same knowledge base of how, how to make something last a really long time and the factories that they're using and the mills that they're sourcing from. So it customers really want to know that the value chain they're investing in is stable and established and there's a consistent aesthetic and it's, it's because the brand becomes a friend, it becomes someone they know. And, um, I think that, um, I don't think we have much to worry about in that realm. There really isn't. I heard a rumor that Stella McCartney is doing a menswear line. Um, <laughs> yes, I think I'd heard that actually. Yes, and she's made uh, it vegan apparently. I mean, that's going to be good for us because her price points are much higher than Brave Gentleman. So I think that that will sort of put something else out there that's like, wait, look, see, we're actually more affordable. Um, but also <laughs> it'll, it'll create another conversation among people that I can't reach yet. I just don't have the resources to reach and, uh, and maybe they'll find brave gentlemen because of that. So exactly, yeah, that's it's, a good ni- point. it's nice to be situated where we are. And I'm really happy with, uh, with what we've been able to accomplish with very little. I started this business on nothing. I, I don't come from money. I don't have, um, uh, I don't have investors until very recently and um and i was able to to start and run a business by working a day job doing it in my free time and i think for other people out there who want to start a business you can't wait for the you can't wait for the environment to be just right and the situation to be just right you sort of have to just dive in and do it and make it work and figure it out and do it in your free time, do it on the weekends, do it after, after, after work, after your day job, or if you're at school, do it after school. Um, there's no reason to wait. That's really good advice, actually. That was that you actually, it's great. You actually answered the questions that I was going to ask around that about advice that you would give to people who, you know, aspire to running their own business or, you know, whether it's a fashion label or any kind of business. I think that's really good advice to, yeah, you know, not just kind of yeah. take a leap and, and hope for the best, but yeah, to be smart about it. Like you said, having the, the day job, which is fantastic. Now, you touched on, um, while we're on that, uh, that thread, you talked about funding the business. You talked about recently you've got investors. So what are some of the methods you, use to get started if you feel whatever you feel comfortable sharing um what are some of the pros and cons of those methods uh of looking for investment yeah or funding like when you first started out you know kind of uh, yeah because some people might get a loan they might do crowdsourcing they might have savings and then at some stage you might get investors in so i'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that as much as you're comfortable sharing of course about how that kind of worked with brave gentlemen Sure. Uh, with with a business, and this is something I really didn't know much about and I've learned, so I apologize to anyone out there who is more, more business savvy than me if this, if, <laughs> if this stuff was obvious. But for me, um, what you, what you want to be doing as you start your business is proving that it's valuable and proving that there's a desire and a need for it. So if, if you have to start with funding it yourself with your 
with your own savings or the money you're making working your day job, um, or if you have to go to friends and family and ask for a little bit of money, um, a little bit can go a long way if you're very strategic. And I really believe in crowdfunding. I didn't do it for because I don't think it makes sense with fashion. Um, there's something about the psychology of fashion where there is the need to to appear as if everything is buttoned up and fine and, and no one needs help and everything is just uh, polished and, and perfect. And if you're out there, you have a luxury a luxury fashion brand and you're also asking for financial help, there's something contradictory about that that doesn't sit quite sit well with me. Uh, but if I were doing any other industry, I would have done crowdfunding as one of the first steps. Um, so then once once you have your a little bit of money to get started with, depending on what you want to do, um, start a website, start your social media presence, get get buzz going, make a prototype, um, and also protect yourself, get get a copyright, get a patent. Um, protect your ideas. Uh, fashion is interesting. You can't really do that. There's no, there's no real copyright for fashion design. I mean, there's a few exceptions to that, but anybody can steal a, a design or a style and get away with it unless you're doing logos or claiming to be a brand that you're not. Um, and the, um, the next stage is looking for looking for more opportunities to grow. So after you've started your, your business and you've put your own resources into it and, and you have a, a successful uh, prototype or you've proven that there's interest and you have, you have something like pre-orders, that's something that's really important for a lot of companies where if you have a product and you don't have the finances to produce a whole bunch of them, you don't have the capital to lay down you know, thousands of dollars and make a whole bunch of something and then cross your fingers and hope it's going to sell is you take pre-orders where you make your prototype, you shoot your photo campaign, you shoot your video, whatever you want to do to market and promote it. And then you offer a discount and you take pre-orders and you say, if you, if you place an order for this product, you'll get 25% off and you'll be the first to receive it. And it delivers in six months from now. And then you give yourself a little bit of time to build up uh, income from the business to then be able to put towards that production. And then if you only make enough to run just the people who did pre-orders, then at least they get their order and you've done something. But if you make enough money that you can run even more, that's where the growth starts to happen, where you've, you've gotten this extra capital and now you can produce more and then sell those at retail. Um, and then it just, it slowly grows like that. Um, is that, do you think that's sufficient That is such advice? good advice. That, that is absolutely, I was just about to say, that is such really, really good advice. Like it makes total sense. Um, and yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And that, that really, you know, because sometimes people think, oh, I've got to make a whole bunch of stuff and then I've got to sell it. Whereas I love what you said about the pre-orders. It's like, no, actually get people to, to pre-order so that you've got that capital to create the products in the first place. Yeah. That's really, There's a lot really of businesses good advice. That- Thank you. There's a lot of businesses that do that. And I do that with my shoe collections. Every season we do a pre-order before the shoes come out or I offer a discount. And, um, and I know also a a company like vote who uh, my friend Leanne, she does, yeah, she does pre-orders with her, with her coats every winter. And I know that um, it's no secret. That's, you know, that's how she was able to to grow such a big successful business was through that model. No, it's an excellent model. And, you know, for anyone who's not aware of that, I think it's really good to, to bring that to people's minds. So thank you very much for sharing that. I think that's really fantastic. Now, you talked about how, um, you know, you grew the business. You, you know, you, you didn't come from money. You've literally kind of, you know, done this off your own back. So talk about a little bit about what are some of the marketing strategies you've used that have been successful in growing Brave Gentlemen? Well, just to clarify, now we do, now we have, uh, we're, we're in coming to the closing of our first investment round. So we do have investors now. Um, but up until this point, it's been self-funded and finding, finding weird ways of, of getting small loans. Like a lot of people don't know that PayPal 
offers loans that are actually yeah and and they're actually more competitive than bank loans and they're easier to get and really wow and the, and the way that you pay that you pay PayPal back is is brilliant you don't pay them back monthly you pay them back only when you have sales so they give you a, a loan of course there's an interest rate and you pay you you know you're going to owe them money at the end um but the interest rate is competitive and they only take money back from what you owe them with each sale that you make through PayPal. So the incentive for them is that you use PayPal as your, um, <laughs> you know, as your yeah, that um, makes sense. <laughs> checkout system. But um, the advantage for you as a user is that um, you get access to these loans. And once one's paid back, you can take another one out and it's based on your sales history and, um, I've, I've done that a couple times and I've been able to pay for, um, inventory because of that without having to go the, the traditional route of sitting in a bank and, you know, dealing with, dealing with bank loans or credit cards. Um, sorry. So you had another question and I went on a tangent. No, that was really, no, I'm glad we, you, we came back to that. That's really actually important. I had no idea that they did that. They did that. And I imagine a lot it's of people called, um, wouldn't know that. So that's really, yeah, it's called PayPal working capital. Oh, wonderful. That's a wonderful tip. You're giving some really cool tips here. Thank you. This is great. Sure. So you mentioned, let, let's stick with investors. You mentioned you've got investors. Um, how did you go about that, um, Joshua? Did you kind of find particular investors to pick? Because like, for example, I interviewed Liz D recently, who's a, as you probably know, wonderful in, investor of, uh, you know, in plant-based yeah. and fashion and stuff. So did you approach certain investors like that are online with your values or did, did they kind of come to you? Uh, how did that sort of go about? Or how, and, and what tips could you offer? vegan brands that would like to get investors? Liz is actually a friend of mine. Um, she's fantastic and a very, very savvy businesswoman and actually provided me with some incredibly valuable insights and advice when I was looking for uh, investment. And, um, sorry, <laughs> I have a little chihuahua here. You've got your little doggy. <laughs> is, is wanting to wanting to have some attention paid to him. Hi, Enzo. <laughs> He's a little rescue chihuahua named Enzo. Oh, um, so usually the best the best route for well, I think it's different for each person. It depends on the business too. Some people will go with a website um, like Circle Up, where they expose your business to a, a, a lot of investors who uh, are looking for businesses to invest in and um uh, and that that's a, a good opportunity to really get your business model out there but um you so you have to make what's called a deck a business deck and that really is your presentation to investors where you 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 show who what is your business who are you what are your values what is your message what are your products what are your your price points and your markups and what um and what is your 10 year or 5 year plan going forward how do you imagine growing and how are you going to make your investment that you're seeking work how will you put that money to use and um i i put that together in a pdf document some people um will put it together in a more you know in an excel sheet but because we're a fashion brand it's very visual um i did that that way and then you reach out to people you know people um who may be other business owners or people who you know might be successful and might have um opportunities to um to get excited about what you're doing and see the see that opportunity in your business because it's so important to see it not as you're asking for help, but more as your offering of an opportunity to other people for them to be able to um, both play a role in growing this business and also to make money. Um, that's a really good point to make, actually. I think a lot of particularly small business owners, that's a really uh, great like mindset, different mindset to come from. I really like that you've, you've said that. Yeah, it's and it was a mindset that I had to shift too. I was approaching it as for a long time, this kind of like, oh, please help me. And yeah. then I was like, wait a, <laughs> wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not asking for help. I'm, 
I'm I'm growing a business that's going to be making money, and it's an opportunity for these investors to be able to, um, have you know, play a role in this business and also make money, and um, and so um, reaching out to people you know, um, doing things like uh, getting press has brought me uh, two of my um, two of my investors where they heard uh, they heard the story of Brave Gentleman and they got excited about it and they reached out to me. And um, over several months, many meetings, you, you know, then you have to get lawyers involved and, uh, and do your financial plans together. And it's a very, um, it's a very involved process, but it's also necessary and rewarding and exciting and working with people who believe in your company and believe in your message and, and see the potential in your business are the kind of investors that, that you should go after. Um, anybody who's just looking to, to get rich off of your business, I would steer clear of an investor like that. Um, yeah. But oh, that's excellent it, advice. <laughs> and there's a lot of, you're gonna, <laughs> there's a lot of red flags out there and, um, I've I've seen some of them and avoided them and others are it just makes total sense the the investors that we're working with now it's just it's like friends they 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 know you they believe in your business they understand what you're doing and why you're doing it and they they share the values and they want to see it flourish and that's yeah, just like so rewarding and so exciting yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Now, I love that you mentioned uh, press because I was going to ask you about some of your media, uh, some of your marketing strategies. So I know you've been featured in some high profile media outlets, including Oprah.com, which is very cool. Um, How did you go about getting that coverage, Joshua? Did you hire a PR firm or a publicist or approached outlets directly or how did that sort of come about? I, for a very long time, did not have a professional PR person working with me. Um, I do, I do now, but for many years, it was just word of mouth and emailing people and people telling other people. And because of my blog being a recognized blog, I was able to use my blog as a platform to really, um, magnify and project what brave gentleman was doing. And if I would, when I, when I would write an article about brave gentleman on the discerning brute, it was looked, it was seen by other press as being somehow a little more legitimate than just sending out a press release because it was already published already on the internet. Um, that really helped. So having, having that blog established before, uh, before the brand was, was crucial to the brand's success because we had a built-in audience and a built-in uh, clientele who were eager for uh, brave gentleman to launch and to and to see the products and to buy the products. So uh, that the other press was just living in New York, going to events, networking, meeting people, talking about it, <laughs> shamelessly being self-promoting, but not in an arrogant way, but in a um, <laughs> in an excited way. Um, I would I would make sure that I would go to. Um, Fashion Week events and and meet people and talk to press and talk to journalists and get them really excited about what is the story of Brave Gentleman? Why are we doing it? Not just, hey, look, we have a very a nice blazer or a really cool pair of boots. The aesthetics are there, and that's just that's just the baseline of of what Brave Gentleman is. It's it has to be good design, but what else is there? Is is our story a, a marketed mythology? Is it like other fashion brands where it's just about fantasy, or is there a real story about the honest integrity of our materials and our products and what we're trying to do? And I think that is what resonated with a lot of journalists because it was so different. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What about social media, Joshua? What what platforms do you find are most useful um, in regards to your business and getting your, either generating sales or raising brand awareness? Um, I try to utilize most of social media 
<laughs> that I can handle. Um, I find that Instagram is very useful for the brand. I have um, a couple accounts on Instagram that I manage. I have the Brave Gentleman account. I have the Discerning Brute account. I also have an account for uh, my forthcoming book that um, that I haven't really publicized yet, but you'll see that later. And <laughs> <laughs> is this the one on animals and animals in fashion? Yes. Yes. Oh, awesome. Um, and then. Things like Snapchat, I tr- I tried using Snapchat and I never really understood <laughs> how that could be helpful for a brand uh, unless you're a big sponsored company on Snapchat. Like they have the channels for the specific um, for the specific media outlets or big brands. So I was so excited when Instagram started doing their own um, their own version of that because it makes so much more sense when it's built into the context of Instagram. Um, I use Facebook. I, a newsletter is really, really crucial. I find that even though it's old school, having a newsletter, I use MailChimp. Um, there's a whole bunch of different newsletter, um, software and websites out there that make it really easy. Having an opportunity for people to sign up to receive your letters and with an incentive, people get 10% off on bravegentleman.com when they sign up for our newsletter. So there's the incentive to sign up and then they get exclusive announcements. They are the first to find out when a new collection drops, when there's a sale, when there's, um, and, and I don't, I really advocate not overusing a newsletter. I get newsletters from companies that send them, even if it's, even if it's once a week, I usually unsubscribe. Um, I try to send out a newsletter maybe once a month. And I find that I have really low unsubscribe rates because of that. I really try to consolidate and get, you know, get everything together into one newsletter. And, um, and I found that people are overwhelmed with the amount of media coming at them, the amount of advertising coming at them in every direction on every website they go to. And the last thing people want is another, another email in their inbox regularly. So if you do go with a newsletter, my advice is to use it very strategically and very sparingly. Um, and that's very Facebook, good advice. <laughs> Twitter, you know, I use something called Hootsuite, which I recommend to anybody who's managing multimedia, <laughs> not multimedia, many media accounts. Um, yes. Hootsuite is a, is a tool that allows you to Instagram, tweet, Facebook, Twitter, all with one post. It sends it out to all your different accounts. You, you can post one thing and it goes out to everything so you don't have to log into Facebook, log into Instagram, log into Twitter and do it over and over. Yeah, yeah, those are very handy. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. On the subject of uh, the word vegan in your marketing materials, there's two schools of thought. Some people say, no, it's too scary a word or frighten people away or no, now it's become cool and trendy. It's clever niche marketing. What are your thoughts on this and and also your choice of how you use the word in your marketing and why or the prominence of it? Yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting, it's, I mean, it's such a it's such a weird time. I, I feel strongly both ways. I feel like it's both, it, it, it is both, it scares people off and it also is, is niche and cool. And it really is about understanding who you're talking to and when to use it and how to use it. Um, so I try, I try to use it um, sparingly. I don't lead with it unless I know my audience is, is ready to receive it. I usually lead with design um, and technology. I talk about my materials being high tech. I call it future leather. Um, and then in the description, I'll say it's 100% vegan. It's um, and, and I'll hashtag vegan and I'll, I'll do all of those things. But I, my fear is that if you lead with the word vegan, people who aren't vegan will a think it's not for them that it's only for vegans and they'll immediately kind of turn the other way and not be interested and not that you've offended them but they just you know if i if i got if i, if I was being advertised um a product that <laughs> that was like 
this, you know, this is gluten free. My initial reaction is like, I'm not interested because I eat gluten. So I'm not going to pay attention. Um, so there's, there's a potential to limit your audience. Um, what I found is that if you have a vegan company with an, an ethical agenda, I have, you know, I, I'm an animal rights activist. Um, the vegans will find you. You don't need to market hard to them. Who you do need to market hard to is the people who you want to reach and the people you want to change. And that requires a little bit more of a psychological acrobatics, if you, if you want to say, um, understanding what works, what appeals to them, how you can deliver a message in a way that isn't going to scare them off or feel insulting or condescending or seem preachy. Um, and it changes all the time. And it really, really depends on the context. It's, it's yeah. a delicate, it's a delicate process. I don't think there's a, um, a certain answer, yes or no, or one way or another exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. I like to ask this. So I ask everyone that question. I get lots of different, um, uh, you know, responses to it. So yeah, no, that's great. And that makes a lot of sense. Like you say, it's very true that the vegans, you know, we're very, one person said to me, um, we're very sneaky vegans. We just find out about all the good stuff anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and I, don't, I hope that doesn't come across as sounding like I don't value my vegan clientele. I mean, Vegans are the reason I have a business, the reason I started a business. They are my most loyal customers. But I trust that they'll know that Brave Gentleman is going to always be vegan and that, you know, as the values that we have and me as the owner of the, of the company, that what I represent and what I believe in, I share with those people. But I, I'm an activist and I want to change people. So I want to, I want to change the world and I, and I need to be, um, I need to be strategic. And sometimes being effective is not the same thing as being correct. And that's a, good a while, point. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can have the most, you can have the most, um, correct way of describing a product that it's, it's vegan and fair trade and organic and non-GMO and all these things. And you, and you want to shout it out to the world because those are your values, but being correct might not be effective. So if you instead were to call that product cool and sexy and high tech and, you know, futuristic and, or, or you know, minimal and clean and modern and, uh, and elegant, whatever whatever aesthetic angle i find that if you lead with aesthetics and you make it about aesthetics that other message can come in a little bit later and reach that person in a way where they're not going to be defensive about it absolutely i love that now final couple of questions are around uh, mindsets i'm very aware you're being very generous with your time so we'll we'll um, we'll go to wrap up now in terms of mindset a lot of people say that running a business um, it's the biggest form of personal development because it forces you out of your comfort zone. You have to learn new things. What um, personal qualities would you um, say are essential to staying the course and running a successful ethical business? Oh, I mean, you have to be a little crazy. <laughs> because, <laughs> no one said that before. That's awesome. <laughs> you, have, you do. You have to be a little crazy because the risks are high. I have been in several situations where I was I didn't think I was gonna you know be able to survive in New York anymore where I there there were times where um you're down to nothing and you're wondering how can I make this work how can I keep going and it's so easy to ditch to ditch it and run and and just be like okay I can't do this anymore I'm going to go back to my day job this isn't working and it's those time periods that if you get through that, that's what really builds the knowledge and the character. And But you also have to know when it is time to cut and run. <laughs> there, and and there, is no, um, there is no formula for necessarily for that. I mean, there are books written about knowing when the right time to, to, to abandon your idea is. But um, having being brave enough to stay that course and being crazy enough to take those risks. It's been easy for me because I don't have children right now. Um, I don't, 
the risks that I'm taking are not going to put anyone else's life in danger. So it's a little bit easier um, when I don't have a whole entire family relying on me. I do have a husband, but he has, he has a job. And, <laughs> uh, you know, we would be okay if I totally failed, but at this point that's not going to happen. But there were times where I, if I did have children, maybe I would have, maybe I would have immediately left it and be like, I can't take this risk because I need, I need to feed my family. I need to be able to have consistent income and, and not be so worried that every day is going to potentially be a disaster. Um, and it is scary. So uh, bravery and a little bit of craziness, but also really, really hard worker. You have to work seven days a week and all day long. I There isn't a day that I've taken off, I mean, here and there maybe, but I pretty much work seven days a week. And I'm six years into my business. And you have to ask yourself, is that something you want to do? Do you want to be on your phone at three o'clock in the morning talking to a mill in Europe about the shipping error that they made and how your materials are not going to arrive on time? Um, do you want to be... Uh, and, and fashion, especially the industry of fashion, from the outside looking in, it's very glamorous and very exciting and cool and sexy and fun. But from the inside working in it, I really advise people not to go into fashion unless they really understand what it is and they really are passionate about it because it is very hard work and it is not glamorous when you're actually making fashion and working in the fashion industry. Yeah, that's really put where she was saying that. I was thinking you've got to have so much passion to be able to to want to do that and still check in with yourself and say, yeah, do I still want to do this work? So I think yeah. that's really important. <laughs> that's wonderful. And um, just final question then, Joshua, what's your long-term vision for Brave Gentlemen and for yourself? Well, we are in the process right now, as I mentioned, of closing on our, on our first round of investing. And um my in the short term we are looking for a new storefront we um we have grown our shoe inventory and our footwear line to include women's sizes so it's now a unisex um a unisex footwear line that was our one of our number one requests was getting um smaller sizes in our footwear for uh, women and boys uh so we did that and um and in the long term I'd really just like to scale up and have more reach and have more impact and have a store in uh, on the West Coast and the East Coast and maybe somewhere in Europe and maybe Japan. The In Tokyo, there's a really fantastic... Uh, people in Tokyo really appreciate menswear and it's cherished and it's not worshipped over there. Um, it's really great for menswear brands to be in Tokyo. It, it's very it's very celebrated. Um and uh, and overall, I I want to I teach at Parsons. I, I've become a fashion professor. I'm writing a book. I really want to change the industry. I really want to change how materials are made. I want to stop the use of animals in fashion. I want to make that obsolete. And part of that is um, starting a project, uh, trying to come up with uh, lab-grown wool. And another part of that is continuing to be an educator and a writer. And I have my book coming out um, next spring. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot going on, but it's it's all on the same kind of trajectory. That's wonderful. And I, what I really love about you is that you've come from this activist and creative background and you've started a successful business and one that you, you didn't know anything about. And now, like you say, you know, you're a fashion professor as well. So I think that's really inspiring, I think, to hear, um, to hear you know, just your journey. Um, you shared some wonderful insights. I know I've learned heaps and I know our listeners will as well. So I really appreciate you taking Thank the time, you. Joshua. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I think your show is incredibly valuable and what an amazing tool for people and a gift that you're giving them. And I really am honored that you featured me. So thank you. So that was Joshua Katcher from Brave Gentleman. You can find out more at bravegentleman.com. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash 
podcasts. Now for our vegan business news roundup. Nottingham in the UK is embracing the vegan revolution with the opening of the city's first vegan pub as well as a deli. The Peacock Pub had already added a number of plant-based dishes to its menu and due to overwhelmingly positive feedback, it closed for renovations for a couple of weeks and reopened last week with an all-vegan menu that includes a Sunday lunch, mushroom and cream cheese tarts, rosemary potatoes and a tofu-based fish and chips meal, reports Clearly Veg. Meanwhile, the city's first all-vegan deli, Amala Living Foods, opened its doors, offering local produce, smoothies, juices, nut milks and organic raw foods, along with vegan sausage rolls, raspberry cheesecake brownies and Oreo cake. That sounds absolutely delicious. (laughs) I went to Nottingham once in the 90s when my partner and I were visiting her mum in nearby Derbyshire and the idea of a vegan pub or deli was unheard heard of back then so it's fantastic to see the city embracing vegan living. Another all-vegan pub is set to open shortly in Sydney, Australia. The Green Lion will take over the upstairs bar at the regular Red Lion pub in the inner west suburb of Roselle. It will serve pub lunch, vegan style, including burgers, fries, shepherd's pie, pepperoni pizza and salads, and all the alcohol will be vegan too. The Green Lion is the brainchild of Bhavani Bauman, who's been delighted with a heap of global media coverage for the new venture. The launch party is on the 17th of September, following the vegan day out in nearby Glebe, organised by the Cruelty Free Shop. I'll be going along to both and I'm looking forward to my first all-vegan pub experience. Yet another first is also happening with the opening of Evergreen Organics in Qatar and it's the country's first ever vegan eatery, reports Doha News. Raw tacos with cashew cream, bowls of kelp and kale and vegan cheesecake are among the offerings from founders Jawar al-Fardan and Ghanim al-Sulati. Both are passionate about healthy eating. The cafe's food is prepared using organic ingredients by two leading international vegetarian and vegan chefs. As well as being animal-free, the menu also leaves refined sugar out of its meals. But for those who enjoy a dessert, a selection of healthy treats, including raw chocolate tort, will satisfy any sweet tooth. While Al-Salati copped some criticism when he went vegan three years ago, with some people accusing him of going against the traditional custom of meat-eating, he challenged them, pointing out that historically meat was not the focus of the culture's diet, and it actually had an emphasis on fruit and vegetables. It really is a process of education and encouraging people to make different choices, and this couple are doing an amazing job. There was a report this week about how the dairy industry in the UK is alarmed by the move towards plant-based milks and other products and that this was being led predominantly by teenagers. It's inspiring to see young people take the lead in rejecting animal products and it's also exciting when young entrepreneurs turn their hand to starting a vegan business, even when they've only just started high school. Jaden Hammond from Chicago is one such boy. He's just 12 years old and runs his own vegan popcorn business using organic ingredients. His family supports him by helping him out at weekends on market stalls and festivals around the city. Even more heartening is that Hammond donates 5% of his profits from J-Rock's Pop to help with the Flint water crisis. What a wonderful young social entrepreneur. This is absolutely what our world needs more of. Finally, you may remember in a previous episode of Vegan Business Talk, I reported that the Pret-a-Manger food chain in the UK were considering making their pop-up veggie pret in London Soho a permanent fixture after its initial success. Well, it seems that's exactly what's happening. Veggie Vision TV broke the story after the company contacted the media outlet with the good news. And not only that, there's a possibility that more Veggie Pret eateries will open. 
Pret-a-Manger CEO Clive Schlee wrote on the company's blog that they're debating where to open the second veggie pret. The odds are that it will be a visible corner in the City of London where we can convert an existing shop to a pop-up and see if it resonates with city workers before deciding whether or not to make it permanent. I hope we can bring veggie pret to more cities in due course, wrote Schley. Well, this is excellent news, especially as the Soho pop-up was only ever meant to be temporary for just a month. According to VeggieVision TV, nearly 10,000 customers voted in a poll last year to shape Pret's veggie offering. More than 45 brand new vegetarian and vegan recipes were developed for Veggie Pret. The store's sales were expected to drop 30% when it became veggie, but they actually grew instead. More than 50% of Veggie Pret customers say they eat meat regularly. And the top eight best-selling products are all vegan-friendly. Fantastic. This really is a testament to how far we've come in terms of vegan food and how it's perceived. Thanks to all the delicious recipes and veganised versions of favourite dishes shared on social media and the willingness of chefs to get creative, people are far more open nowadays to embracing vegan foods, which is exactly what we want. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving it a review and a rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. I'm Katrina Fox from veganbusinessmedia.com and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode. Bye for now.